Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandro Bronfman. My guest today is Rachel Price, Associate Professor of Spanish and Portuguese at Princeton University. And we're going to be talking about her book, Planet Cuba, Art, Culture, and the Future of the Island, just published with Verso Press in 2015. So this book... Hi, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandro Bronfman. My guest today is Rachel Price, Associate Professor of Spanish and Portuguese at Princeton University. And we're going to be talking about her book, Planet Cuba, Art, Culture, and the Future of the Island, just published with Verso Press in 2015. So this book, as she describes it, is a map of cultural production in Cuba in the last decade. And in particular, it looks at art and literature that moves away from national and international narratives to more local and planetary, and we're going to be talking about what she means by that in the interview. It's a wonderful book with analysis of really fascinating artworks, and I'm really pleased to be speaking with her today. Rachel, welcome, and thanks for talking to me today. My pleasure. So can we start off with you telling us a little bit about how you came to be interested in Cuba, and in particular in Cuban art and literature? Sure. Um, How I came to be interested in Cuba is sort of a long story. Um, I worked for a year in Colombia in 1997-1998, right after college. And I had to leave the country to renew my one-year visa at some point. And a friend was going to a poetry conference in Cuba. So I went along with her, and that was my first visit. When I came back to the U.S., I ended up working at the Social Science Research Council for three years. And I worked in their Latin American division. And um, one of the programs that they had going at the time, which I ended up um, coordinating, was a program to, inc- to better academic relations between U.S. and Cuban academics, which at the time were really being undercut by some of the U.S. Um, government policies towards Cuba. So over those three years until about 2001, I would go to Cuba every few months for this job. And along the way, came to really know the archives and libraries and got interested in the culture. So that's how I first got interested. That's great. And so why Cuban art and literature in this particular book? Right. So so this book has had an interesting genesis because uh, the focus ended up being um, probably 80% art and maybe 20% literature. I do come out of comparative literature, and I was thinking I was going to do something more on contemporary Cuban literature. What had happened was I had done work on Brazilian digital art, some of the earliest digital art in Latin America from the late 1960s, and I presented some of that work in Cuba in a conference around 2010. And at the time, there were several Cuban curators who were also at the conference who who showed some then contemporary Cuban digital art, which I, I was really impressed by because at the time, and really still today, there's such little internet access. I was curious how they were working with, say, video game art from the U.S. and sort of appropriating it. So I met with one of these curators, Rewa Latunaga, and he in turn showed me a recent catalog of about 100 then 
very young emerging Cuban artists. And I really got interested in it because it seemed to me that art was and continues to be the space where the most interesting innovation and reflection is happening in Cuba. So when I had a sabbatical and was sort of thinking of doing something more with the question of digital literature and digital art in Cuba, I went to Cuba for about six weeks. And um, we can talk about this later, but beginning to work with some of these digital artists, I became aware of the shifts that were happening then with the change from Fidel to Raul Castro, in particular having to do with questions of the local and the environment. And then the book sort of emerged organically from following artists, conversations, reading people that other artists or writers recommended. Yeah, and actually that leads nicely into the next question I was going to ask you about, which is really about the title. And for people who can't look at the title, for our listeners, there's a slash in between Planet and Cuba. And you make a case for the slash actually being part of the argument of the book um, in the sense that you're trying to get away from the national narratives and the international narratives and really think more about the local, the organic, as you say, and the global at the same time. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that slash and what it means to you and how we should read it. So to back up a little bit, um, throughout the sort of 60s to the 80s, the Cuban Revolution, particularly under Fidel Castro's leadership, projected an image of internationalism, of Marxist internationalism, solidarity, um, third world alliance of South-South collaboration. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, this discourse of internationalism sort of went away and there became a focus on the peculiar problems of the post-Soviet Cuba at the same time that it was actually undergoing some of the marks of globalization, which is, say, opening up to the global market. So it lost a certain discourse of internationalism, but it also became sort of part of a more globalized trends. And at the same time, though, the Cuban government was emphasizing the nation sort of Cuban pride and Cuban perils rather than, say, international questions. After about the 1990s, I think artists and writers got sick of this this newly nationalist um, framework and began looking and seeing, they began traveling more, and they began seeing that the issues that Cuba is facing today are not that different than issues that people are facing everywhere. So climate change, deindustrialization, the withering of certain welfare states. And so the more that people have circulated, and again, this is particularly artists, I think the more they have seen certain commonalities that have less to do with international alliance and more to do with global problems of precariousness today, among other among other issues. So that was one shift that I saw. And it actually had been pointed out to me by an artist who was sort of important for thinking about the book, an artist and a gallerist named Samuel Rierda. And he's somebody that had done, he'd done both digital art, and he was a designer originally, and environmental art. And the reason he told me that he'd gotten interested in some of these environmental questions was that he saw Raul's ascendancy or his leadership as much more pragmatic and focused on what was wrong with Cuba. So again, the end of a kind of messianic discourse from Fidel Castro aimed towards um, global uh, projects and much more of an emphasis on fixing local problems. Um, And so he said that this kind of freed him and other artists up to shift their focus from a certain kind of internationalist discourse to look at what's happening in the interior of of the island. And so in the case of Samuel Prieda, he and some friends um, requested some 
land from the state that had been overrun by a shrub, an invasive species, Mardahu, to turn it into a ecological community. And they did receive the land and they made the plans, but they never actually built the community. But this is the kind of work that Salmagrera felt was possible after the shift to Raul. I like that formulation because it allows you to talk about the changes in Raul without sort of, but but getting away from the dichotomy of sort of ideological, non-ideological, um, and sort of revolutionary, non-revolutionary, really sort of shifts the categories and allows you to understand what's going on locally in a in a much bigger framework. So I think that that was that was really helpful for me in, in terms of thinking about that. So I wanted to get a little bit more specific in terms of the kinds of themes that you do take up, and you talk about it as a kind of map of cultural production in the last decade. And, and I was thinking about the notion of map and we all know that maps are arguments as much as they're representations. And so I'm wondering how you came to choose the particular themes of each of the chapters. And we can talk a little bit more about them uh, in depth later on in the interview. But so the themes are just to acquaint your readers, um, trees, Marabu, which you just mentioned, water, energy, work and play, and surveillance. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process by which you narrowed down what is really a very vital moment full of all kinds of things going on in Cuba to these, um, mm-hmm. to these six sort of categories. Yeah, well, first let me say that though this book does, I think there might be like 100 artists or writers mentioned in it, it's still a very small sampling and you could do an entirely different book of contemporary Cuban art that was just on sort of the return of um, abstraction or an interest in geometric sort of retaking 1960s geometric abstraction, which is very popular today and has a lot to do with the art market, frankly, Um, or other, you know, other preoccupations. One person who saw a presentation of the book asked me, you know, where is sexuality? And I talked to them about why that wasn't a central theme in this book in particular. But the question then is, how did I choose these and why? I mean, in some part, I think it's hard not to be aware of of the changes that, you know, have been associated with what is sometimes called the Anthropocene. So it's hard not to sort of be noticing what's happening in terms of environmental crisis. And it's interesting in Cuba because there's both awareness and disavowal of this um, in the sense that it's under, environmental concerns are often understood to be concerns of the North American Academy. But at the same time, people will tell you, I haven't worn a jacket for six years. It never gets cold anymore. Um, there's immense droughts in Cuba and the Caribbean. So there's both both this kind of um, awareness, especially in the science fiction that I look at, where sort of often the themes are examining this dystopic future in which current environmental problems are augmented or magnified. Um, and then there's also a sense of we've got other problems that are much more pressing than the environment. But I was very aware of it. And again, some of these artists first, when I saw this catalog um, shown me by Rewala Tunaga, I saw some of these preoccupations and I just sort of followed them. Um, so that was that was um, how I got interested in some of the ecological questions. The other part of that is that, especially the question of water and oil, is if we go beyond um, the very visible discourse of entrepreneurship, which is often what's emphasized in terms of the reforms being put in place by Raul, there's also vast top-down rather than bottom-up economic changes that are being put into place, whether or not they're successful, I think is an open question. And one of them, for example, is the redevelopment of the port of Mariel into the biggest uh, port in the Caribbean. It's um, now sized to receive post-Panama 
ships, so ships that can go through the enlarged Panama Canal. Um, it has a free trade zone associated with it. Um, and so this is clearly some place that the Cuban government is investing a lot of its hopes for the economy, technology transfer, um, and other forms of development. And also because Cuba has been deindustrializing like many countries in Latin America, the emphasis is increasingly on services and obviously increasingly on tourism. So in a way, the coasts and questions about petroleum and, and the Port of Mariel are, are one part of changes in the economy or potential changes in the economy. So although it's not necessarily what first comes to mind in terms of the recent changes, it's sort of lurking in the background some of the larger scale gambles, I think. In terms of the question of, of sort of free time and play and surveillance, in a way, this came out of my interest in some of the recent digital art and hacker art coming out of Cuba. And partially I was just interested in sort of changing the discussion because um, after the 1990s, so much analysis of Cuban art and literature was about either the special period, so the period of scarcity and crisis after the fall of the Soviet Union, or kind of folkloric Cuban issues, be it um, dance and music and so on, that I felt like artists who are interested in in dialogues um, beyond the island or even within the island, but in media and discourses that you might find elsewhere, were not really getting the attention they deserved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all fits together really in interesting ways, and which is one of the things I want to talk about later. But let's, uh, let's go to the trees. Um, and there's lots of really fascinating pieces that you describe in that chapter, but I wanted just to start out talking about the hanging tree, the, the piece that's called Paisaje Itinerante, mm-hmm. in which, so there's a planter suspended in midair and it's got a tree in it. Uh, and maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit more about it, but I just wonder how that spoke to you and, and why that was included in the book. Uh-huh. Um, so that piece is by a young artist, Rafael Villardes, who has a really impressive uh, body of work, especially given how young he is. Um, and he's somebody who has worked repeatedly with trees and with um, the natural environment as well as the built environment. And what was compelling to me about that piece, which was uh, made for not the last but the penultimate Havana Biennial, it was, again, a huge planter with a tree in it suspended from a crane. And you could go up through a staircase and sit and a park bench by the tree and overlook the harbor. And the idea, it did move four times. That was why it was called itinerant landscape. Um, The idea behind it was to sort of give people who live in Havana a different perspective on the city and also bring trees into a very urban landscape. Uh, What I thought was interesting about it, um, I mentioned in the book that it's not unlike a piece made by... um, a Brazil-based Mexican artist as well, who also sort of brought trees into some Sao Paulo dried-up canals, is um, that artists are interested in working not with representations of landscape necessarily, but with landscape itself in this case, mm-hmm. and sort of bringing um, bringing what is beyond vision to an urban dweller into daily life, and then shifting, literally shifting perspective. So you go into the planter and you see everything differently, as well as seeing the, tr- seeing the city differently by seeing the tree within the city. Yeah. And a lot of that chapter also discusses this really fascinating grandfather-grandson pair, where Jose Manuel 
and Albert uh, Fors. Mm -hmm. uh, and the grandfather, I guess, was a forester and an author who worked in the 1930s. And the grandson is an artist who takes up his writings in the art. And one of the things that actually two things struck me about that. One is the way that you reach back to the 1930s and connect it to the everyday, because it seems like yeah, the 1930s is this kind of very fascinating but forgotten or neglected um, period in Cuban history. And also to get back to the trees, so much of Cuban literature has to do with either sugar or tobacco, maybe coffee. But the trees really stand out here, as well as the marabou and the water, which we'll get to in a little bit later, but um, they're so elemental and so taken for granted. And so I wonder if part of what you see as what's going on now is the kind of rediscovery or the discovery of these particular elements, elements as, especially as, as you say, the economy is moving away from sugar and maybe even tobacco. I'm not sure about that. Definitely. I think it's actually um, a critical moment because the 1930s were actually sort of the nadir for forests in Cuba. That was the moment in which the, the island was the most deforested it ever had been, basically due to sugar. Um, and then after that period, and especially after the revolution, there was an important effort to reforest the island, which of course is also accompanied by a sort of, I would say, unintentional effort to reforest the island, simply by the lack of of um, development and industrialization after a certain point. But the point is that the island is actually with an excellent ecological um, ecology right now and pretty well forested. But I say it's a critical moment because the sugar industry was closed in the mid-2000s. It's all but non-existent at this point. But there's definitely signs of interest from former U.S. sugar uh, industrialists who also moved to the U.S. and do sugar in Florida, and also a lot of Brazilians, which are the leading um, sugar uh, producers today in the island. So I'm not sure that the era of sugar is necessarily over. It obviously can't compete with a place like Brazil in terms of scale. But I think it's a moment in which I do think something's going to happen with agriculture in Cuba. And I I think there'll be pockets of development that have to do with some of the kind of organic agriculture that's been pioneered. But Frankly, that, that agriculture hasn't really yielded uh, food security or what people need. So I think there's probably going to be a lot of agricultural development and forestation could be an issue again. Um, so I think, I think some of the interest in trees is this waning of sugar, but also this awareness that something's going to change. Yeah, and I guess that related to that is this question of marabou. Uh, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about marabou and why it's relevant now. Um, and also, I was really just struck by the a lot of the works in this chapter. One of the most intriguing to me was by Ernesto Orosa and Gian Moreno's, what they called the Modelo de Expansión, which is model of expansion, um, which is this kind of wall that's papered with a tabloid with a repeating ex pattern of explosions of trees and technology and disaster and regeneration. And <laughs> there's so much going on in that chapter. Um, but, but maybe we can just t start talking about, about Marabou and why it, it seems like such a fitting metaphor for so many things that are going on today. Sure. So first of all, the chapter looks at about, I think, six or seven artists and writers that engage Marabou. And then since the book came out, I've, I've come across three other pieces made this year about Marabou. So I feel like it's, it's not going away. It's a metaphor. So marabou is an invasive species that was brought to Cuba in the 19th century. There's a lot of sort of mythological origin tales about how it came, but the idea is that it came from Africa, 
or that the plant is from Africa and it came via cattle. So either in their intestines or in what they were eating. And it spreads both um, through their excrement and also as a rhizome underneath the ground. And it's been a problem throughout the 20th century in Cuba, but it was always sort of kept under control. And it's it sort of made a resurgence after the fall of the Soviet Union, in part because petroleum had been used to eradicate the roots. And when the petroleum went away, there was less of that. There was also simply less farming. Um, and then increasingly, um, as sugar is no longer being planted, it takes over the fallow sugar field. So at some point... Um, the economist Carmelo Mesalaibo said that I think 50 to 70 percent of, of fertile land in Cuba was overrun with Maravu at present. So people have really seized on it, poets, um, video artists, um, the, the two kind of uh, designers and conceptual artists that you mentioned, as a very polysemic metaphor. Sometimes and often it actually is an index of both the state's presence and the state's kind of abandonment of agriculture. So the kind of long arm of the state, but a state that is not doing enough to encourage agriculture. Um, other artists have seen it because it's so hard to eradicate. It's thorny. A lot of people have had to cut marabou when they go to their their country school. So this is something that teenagers do for two weeks. Often they have to cut marabou. So they see it as a kind of symbol for the difficulties and sacrifices that they're asked to do. Um, and then the two artists that you mentioned, um, Ernesto Rosa and Jean Moreno, did a really interesting installation um, that you described in a sort of 20-page essay about Marabu, in which they saw it as this both atavistic and futuristic kind of plant that was almost multiplying as if it were digital. And they talk at some point about watching the nightly news in Cuba and seeing behind the newscaster, sort of some marabou plants that have become digitized, and they see this as an example of um, this infinite replicability of a plant that's just simply taking over in the absence of, of fruitful agriculture. So I, those are sort of the metaphors I see it most often being used for. Yeah, and it struck me reading this chapter, and actually the whole book, that in some ways the the metaphor and the concrete, the everyday and the abstract, they're, they're so present in the work of these artists. And, and it just seems like those, those kinds of things are very generative for the art that you're looking at. So this, this, the, these things that are actually out there, but they're also, they, they're so steeped in metaphor and they're so layered. Um, they, they seem to be very, um, very, uh, the source of a lot of creativity, but it was actually, also wondering about the inverse. So I was wondering about your own process and your own writing process. And I thought about the way that reading the art or thinking about the art, analyzing the art allows you an entry, not just into the art, but into Cuban daily life, also politics, also um, the, these combinations of metaphor and concrete realities in both built and natural environments. It, it really seemed like a very rich way to enter um, this present moment. Absolutely. And, and I think um, I had sort of started to say, but I'm not sure that I finished the thought earlier on, that I come out of literature and thought I'd do a more literary book, but because the art was so compelling, I really went with it, in part because I felt like with some very notable, interesting exceptions, a lot of contemporary Cuban literature, I feel like it still isn't quite grasping that vitality of, of everyday life in the same way. Or it isn't... Um, 
it isn't finding a space to propose interesting new possibilities where where Cubans can go from here in the same way that visual art is. Um, I think for a variety of reasons, but I definitely did feel that contemporary art um, was an exciting space for understanding everyday life. And I think um, it's no coincidence that a lot of young artists are working through very, uh, I guess they would be understood as conceptual art, but conceptual art that works with very um, micro political questions. So the duo Celia Jr., for example, they always do interventions into uh, the systems that run everyday life in Cuba, the blood donation system, the healthcare system, the education system. Um, other artists um, have done work on that. This is something that came out sort of after the book, the El Paquete, the, the digital two terabyte um, weekly um, packet of, of digital media. So um, I actually have a graduate student right now who's working on an artist who produces work for El Paquete, but also works on El Paquete as a kind of organic, popular form of exchanging media. So I think artists are really close to interesting shifts in Cuban culture. Yeah, and there's something about uh, what you mentioned just a moment ago in terms of bringing Cuba into the future or sort of using the present. And I just want to read a quote that I found particularly compelling in that regard, which is where you say, Marewu's forms of replication are born in the colonial period, yet morph into the forms of the present and future, dragging along a past that won't die. And this is kind of... Um, what you see so much of in Cuba, the, the, the not letting go of the past, but also the bringing it forward and changing in these very unexpected ways into the present and into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also talk a little bit about that with, um, with energy, which I want to get to in a minute. But let's talk about water. <laughs> <laughs> so the ocean is really, as you say, taken for granted on an island, on any island, and seen, um, seen with new eyes, in particular through the artists that you're, that you're looking at. And it's also both kind of threatening and threatened. It's scary, but it's also a place that's under siege. Um, and I, I loved, for example, the pictures of the glaciers that are placed on the Malecon. So you get this, these tensions arising from that juxtaposition of the tropical ocean and the, and the uh, icy oceans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering about actually the traditions of water in art and literature. Are there are, are these artists drawing from from long literatures or long histories of sort of thinking about water, or, or is this kind of new? No, they're definitely drawing on a long tradition um, in literature. For example, probably the most famous poem of the 20th century is Virgilio Pinera's La Isla en Peso, which begins with the poet saying, um, you know the damp circumstance of having to be surrounded by water. So kind of the insularity of Cuba, the idea of being an island, being absolutely surrounded by the ocean has always been a central part of literature. Um, But I feel like it's been more uh, existential. It has to do with this question of what does it mean to be an island or an archipelago, Mm -hmm. a part of the Caribbean. Um, And then in the 1990s with sort of the rafter crisis, um, at that time, you still needed permission to leave the island, which was lifted um, just three years ago. There was this question of sort of the, the, the water as freedom and also fence. And I think what I saw changing in these uh, more recent works was an idea of the oceans as part of the, the global ocean, as it's sometimes referred to, sort of the idea that um, 
what's happening in the Cuban environment is happening to the Caribbean as a whole, and it's happening to the globe as a whole. So um, no longer seeing um, the water as part of a kind of ontological question of what it means to be an islander, and more as almost a medium. Yeah, that that uh, that resonates a lot, and in particular with other things that are happening sort of with art around the Caribbean. I'm thinking of, actually, I'm staring at my screensaver right now, and I have the picture of the underwater sculptures that people have made. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with those, these mm-hmm. underwater sculptures of, yeah. um, of enslaved people and sort of using the ocean, as you say, as a medium really resonates. Um, so let's talk a, a little bit about time and the glaciers really sort of bring that up in this, in this important way in terms of what's happening with the glaciers as, um, as they, as they change over time. Uh, and also the, the, um, the way you talk about, I really like the way you talk about really long and really short time scales with reference to the glaciers, but also with reference to, uh, the chapter on energy, fossil fuels, cars, oil, all of those kinds of things, and the way that energy is both about long-term time and short-term time. And you have this quote by Harold Vasquez Lay on his uh, photographs that, that he calls the Era del Carbón, and he says, a dimension of the present from a future perspective, generating narrations in the past tense that relate to the ambiguity of the moment and recent history. That sounds a, uh, that resonates a little bit with your own quote about the Marabu, and I wonder if you can take that apart a little bit and talk about time and, and its role in, in your book and, and in this art that has to do with fossil fuels and oil and mm-hmm. energy. I'll try to answer that, and you can remind me if I wander too far. Um, One thing that the book does, which is implicit in the sort of divisions between land, water, time, and technology, is that it looks at the emergence of this um, interest in ecological questions alongside a simultaneously and equally strong or, or stronger interest in in the digital. Um, and And I make the claim in the introduction... Uh, borrowing from other scholars, that it's not a coincidence that the digital and the ecological kind of emerged together in the 1970s, because they're both ways of thinking about networks and the globe beyond any particular space. And so somebody like um, Arnold vasquez Le, who I think is a really interesting artist, I really want to take his art not as merely Cuban, but also as art that is trying to help us think about the contemporary moment, both in terms of new media and in terms of the environment. And so some of his images, um, and he has images of glaciers as well, are digital images that he takes off the internet of glaciers that have now changed so that that original referent is no longer out there in the world. And then he recreates the images as if they were photographs. He's typically a photographer, but he makes them out of out of salt crystals. So it's not a digital image. It's not an analog image. It's no longer um, playing the role that photography has long played of documenting the world. And the world itself is no longer there because of climate change. So I think he's trying to use contemporary media and thinking about the way that um, we work with media, we manipulate media. He often manipulates scenes that are shot in the daytime to look like the nighttime to return to this question of time. He likes to play with the kind of temporality that photography or media um, enshrines in the moment in which it's, it's captured. 
So the way that those questions have changed in the move from the analog to the digital to whatever he's working with sort of parallel some of the questions about how do we think about planetary time, geological time, when things that we took to be infinitely slowly changing, that is changing glacially, are themselves now icons of of really rapid and destructive change. Um, So that's an example, I think, of where the art itself is trying to offer a way to think about temporal change more broadly. In terms of um, some of the questions of petroleum and energy more generally, again, it's a kind of mix between the concrete and the conceptual, because energy is a real concrete question in Cuba. Energy independence, there's been development of windmill, you know, aeolic energy. There's the whole question of what to do um, after Venezuela has withdrawn its petroleum support. That's something that's very urgent right now. So energy is something that people are very familiar with. They always hear this discourse. But artists have tried to do something with energy to take it beyond the kind of question of simply producing light, for example, and think about um, energy in a more aesthetic way. So Edgar Echevarria, another artist that I work with or or write about, um, is interested in both those discourses of generating new energy and color, the kind of discussions within the history of of color theory and how color itself generates different forms of energy. Um, But I don't know if I've answered your question about time so well, because there's another portion of the book that looks at what does daily time feel like in Cuba today? Which yeah. is maybe a slightly different question. Well, I, actually, I was just going to get to that, and I think that the that the connection between thinking about time and that scale, and then you move towards this notion of free time, work time, play time, is um, it's subtle, but it's so it, it makes so much sense when you when you think about how you're moving through the book. So, so suddenly, there seems to be this shift that's that 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 um, that you make, but it but it actually fits in and, and it's connected all with this question of time. Um, and that's one of the things that I was going to ask you next. This, this, uh, this chapter has a really striking description of the piece by Celia Jr., who you just mentioned called Un Olor Que Entra Por Mi Ventana. And it's a book about food. I mean, it's a piece about food, lottery, cooking, and time. Um, and so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this piece and the, and the ways it ties so many of the, the themes of the book together. Mm-hmm. Um, so to begin with, the piece was made possible by, I think, um, a residency or some kind of support from, I think it might be Havana Club. I, you can check that in the book. <laughs> um, but basically, so that's already the first um, key component is the role of different forms of support for artists to have the kind of time to do the work that they do. So Mm -hmm. they, they won the support and they decided they want to do something that was really fun, something that was enjoyable. And they decided to kind of bring together the, the Cuban tradition of the charada, which is a a kind of Chinese Cuban interpretive game that has to do with the lottery. (laughs) It's very complex to describe. Um, but it both involves a kind of zodiac of animals, but also interpretation of what, what selecting this or that animal would mean. And the plan was that they and their friends, they got a group of, I don't remember the number, maybe eight or ten friends, would play this game. And whatever animal was selected, they would have to prepare for the rest of the group. And they would accumulate 
um, in their studio the residual bowls that they produced in this game of 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 chance and then cooking. Um, and sort of that was the piece. And, and it has to do with um, the value of food in a place where it's still pretty difficult to get food. Um, and also what it means to have those kinds of limitations taken away. So absolute chance, absolute freedom in, in a very restricted sense, absolute possibility to provide something. And the unpredictable, while also drawing on sort of traditions in, in Cuban culture, popular culture, and, and I guess consumption um, from the pre-revolutionary period when there was still lotteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that chapter is also full of these kinds of paradoxical, contra- sort of paradoxes, right? The contrast between free time, work time, play time. There's the artist who pays workers not to work, right? Mm-hmm. Or not to, or not to go to their factory jobs, but just to do something else. And there, there are all kinds of sort of contradictions in ways that people are really stretching out and, and moving around within those, um, those really changing uh, uh, pillars of everyday life, I guess I would, I would say. And that's where I think we really have stand to learn a lot from contemporary Cuba too, because these are the questions, I mean, we're in this election year here in the U.S., <laughs> where questions of, like, what work is and what kind of work we want um, are really are really central. And I think you know, one of the artists that you mentioned, Adrian Melis, who's one of the pieces, um, for example, he, collect, he paid artists, he collected the dreams that they had when they fell asleep at their state jobs um, and exhibited those dreams. Um, he works not only within Cuba, but also in Europe. So he looks at what it means, what the precari- precariousness of work today, not just in Cuba, but also in contemporary Spain. And I think that that parallel and contrast is instructive because I don't think Cuba is particularly unique in facing these questions of, of, of what kind of work is possible and what kind of work we want. Well, I think that's true, and I that I really was thinking about that in terms of the last chapter on surveillance, and um, it seems to me that Cuba and the rest of the world have sort of come together in this way that um, it turns out that Cubans have a lot to teach the rest of the world about what it means, what surveillance means, and what it is, um, and the different levels of surveillance and the different ways that it works. That really struck me um, as as one of the ways in which the Cubans really um, now they're speaking to these global issues that are that are so relevant. And I I hate I I love to say that this notion of Cuba's frozen in time is, is really needs to be thrown out the window. And that was one of the things that really struck me about that final chapter. Yeah. I mean, one thing I want to do with that final chapter while not denying um, the very palpable history of surveillance in Cuba is to look at how Cuban artists are very savvy and who circulate a lot throughout the world, you know, are aware that Cuban surveillance as terrible as it is, still pales in terms of scale with things like NSA or Echelon. And and that if they're interested in asking these questions about surveillance, they have to really engage the literally global dimensions of of other forms of surveillance. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's something that I I saw them doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So in the last chapter, you introduced Tania Bruguera, who's really quite well known and has recently been in the news because of her work with Cubans in Central America and the questions of migration. And you talk about her piece, Tatlin's Whisper. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could describe that piece a little bit and just talk a little bit about why she's important in the book and how you, well, I'll, I'll ask the second part of that question later. <laughs> okay, well, Tania Bruguera is important in the book, I would say, in large part for her role as an educator, because she ran a series of workshops on a certain kind of performance art, art of conduct, as she calls it, in which the tools are often power relations that an artist might work with. This is the kind of work that she herself does. Um, And she ran those for about six years, sort of annexed or in some kind of collaboration with the Institute of Higher Art. And she really was instrumental in training a generation of younger artists, many of whom are the artists that I I look at who are now working with much more um, technological forms of power. So although Tanya sometimes does work with um, technology technology or or technological kind of platforms, it's these younger artists that seem to be much more interested in kind of a hacker ethos. Um, but they, but they all, or many of them studied with her. So in that sense, she's very important for shaping interests in the sort of latter part of the book, some of the more conceptual and digital art. But I do look at her own piece, um, Catelyn's Whisper, which she did for, I think it was the 2009 biennial, um, which was that uh, she placed a microphone flanked by two people dressed up as if they were military guards. And anyone was invited to go up to the microphone and speak for 60 seconds, after which time uh, the guards would drag the person away. And a white dove was placed on the shoulder to evoke a very um, serendipitous moment in a 1959 speech by Fidel Castro when a dove landed on his shoulder, and many people saw him as a sort of anointed one as a result. Um, And Tanya has spoken a lot about the piece, and she said that at the time she was prepared for nobody to say anything, but actually many people came up and spoke about a range of topics. And and, And the piece became much more important, I guess, or talked about when she proposed restaging it Um, just after the announcement of the normalization of relations between Cuba and the U.S., she wanted to do it on the topic of normalization in the Plaza de la Revolución. And it's a long story of negotiations of where she wanted to do it, where she was allowed to do it. But in the end, she was not allowed to do it in the plaza, and she went ahead and began to stage it anyway, and then ran into a host of problems, had her passport taken away, and so on. Um, So I think that's why the case is better known, or why the piece is better known, um, but I talk about her mainly in the context of her important role shaping discussions among some younger Cuban artists. So the book ends with some attention to her and to Celia Jr.'s um, sort of focus on detail, on the tiny everyday, and on the amassing of thousands of small bits of information. And I'm wondering what that decision does for the ending and for the overall shape of the book how did you decide to sort of land there you know I'm not sure I can reconstruct the process of how I decided to land there but I did find in the final readings of some contemporary novels also that look back at the history of cultural policy the concern with surveillance the concern with um freedom of expression 
by a younger generation. So that's sort of doing an archaeology of what it meant to be a Cuban artist in the 60s or 70s. Um, I saw that there was um, a move to sort of comb through a lot of Cuban history and try to make new narratives. So I saw this attention to detail in a way, an attempt to construct a new map or a new history, a new rereading of history. And I would actually say that I think a lot has changed. I've been back a few times this year since the book came out. The book came out in November um, of last year. And I think already there have been real shifts. Um, I think that that's definitely still part of a certain current in Cuban art. So you get somebody like Alejandro Gonzalez who recreates miniature scenes of iconic moments in the 1970s. So the Third Party Congress, the founding of the Parque Lenin, um, he, he recreates these miniature scenes and then photographs them. So this kind of archaeology of, of the Cuban Revolution, really, um, is, I think, something that's interesting to younger artists that were born in that period. You know, they were born in the 70s, 80s, or even 90s, and they're kind of trying to figure out what it was. But I do think in terms of surveillance, I was talking with a friend there just actually last week, um, and we were saying, you know, before this question of G2 the state security was sort of always there in the background, whether it was a joke or whether it was a fear, it was sort of an awareness. And I know that I myself was often, you know, followed when I was doing research. I always did it totally openly because I wasn't doing anything. I had anything to hide, Uh, but that has also sort of vanished from people's discussion or concern. I think surveillance is also moving. Obviously there are exceptions, but I I feel like as part of popular discourse, it's, it's moving into, a recent past. That's my impression anyway. Hmm. Fascinating. So we've taken up a lot of your time and I hope that everybody runs out and reads this terrific book. And um, just by closing, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now. Um, Sure. I'm doing, I'm working on a small piece and a long piece. The small piece is on um, a Cuban artist, Lolo Soldevilla, who worked in the 1950s, an abstract artist, and then turned to designing toys in the first years of the revolution. And the much longer project has to do with um, communication in the age of slavery in Cuba and Brazil. So what does it mean to think about language and literature and communication? The moment that we have national literatures emerging, but there's actually hundreds of languages, many African languages being spoken. And what happened to those other sounds, those other languages, those other narratives. So I'm trying to very painstakingly find what I can of Yoruba, for example, in some of the court records from the 19th century and see what I can do with that. Mm, That sounds fascinating. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.